Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, and joining me today, he's the man who played James Bloom in the TNT original series, The Closer, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I am very fine. Thank you. Uh, yeah, James Bloom. Yeah, that was, uh, we were a lawyer, but what was really exciting about that was uh, we got to shoot up in the uh, Holmby Hills, is that what they call it? Right next to her, uh, to uh, Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion. Uh huh. So we shot at the mansion right next door to the Playboy Mansion. And to buy any of these houses must cost in the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Of course, in this market, you know, maybe not. But it was, we shot all over the, the mansion, and I noticed that if you were upstairs in bed watching Law and & Order, and, and I timed it, let's say you wanted to come downstairs to the kitchen and get a beer, it would take you 20 minutes to come down from your bedroom to get a beer and go back upstairs. You would, you would have to TiVo the show if you wanted to eat snacks during it because you would miss the show getting snacks. That is pretty insane, sir. But of course, then you probably ha they had a pet cat, <clears throat> and they told us to keep the doors shut of the mansion because they didn't want the cat to escape. But the point is, the mansion was so huge, you would never find the cat in the mansion anyway. Yeah, you need I mean, like the a cat location. could be at one end of the mansion. It would take like a, you know, you'd have to get on a moped to find it. <laughs> you need like a location tracker or something. Yeah, like that yes, you need the out. chip. You need the chip and the cat. Well, in any case, Stephen, you know, we were talking last week and we closed off last week's show about Autograph Nationals, I think. Is that yes, what it's called? Yes. Autograph Nationals. And what this show is, is they, they basically take a bunch of sort of uh, celebrities and actors um, from TV I like shows. the way you say sort of. <laughs> yeah, I, I, sort of. Yeah, yeah, I paused a little bit to sort of, you know, you can, you can put in whatever adjectives in your mind you want. But they, they round up a lot of uh, celebrities and actors and they put them all in one sort of big convention hallway, and then that people come, and they you can you, you sort of uh, you as a celebrity you sell uh, people autographs and other various paraphernalia from your career. Is yeah. is that a, is that a good summary of what this autograph nationals is? Yeah, that's that's a lot what it's like, and it, it plays on the worst part of your uh, makeup of your character as a human being because at first you go, oh, this is going to be really exciting. People are going to ask for my autograph. But soon as you get there, you realize it's like square dance day in uh, elementary school and nobody wants to pick you. So after a relatively short period of time, I think for me it was about 12 minutes, I started feeling like an animal at the zoo where people were walking by and looking at me and then like I was an animal, maybe like the antelope part of the zoo, not the cool part of the zoo, but like a wildebeest. And they're going like, Daddy, Daddy, can we go see the monkeys? Where are the gorillas? Where's even the snakes? You know, let's go see the snakes. So people would walk by and uh, not want my autograph. Um, and they would look at you like, oh, that's just a wildebeest. And they'd walk on, we don't need that. So, but it had me thinking about the, the podcast because I did have a bunch of kids come up to me at one point and they were very excited about fight scenes in movies and they wanted to enact these fight scenes and they wanted to know how to do it. So I got up and demonstrated much to their parents' horror 
about how we do fight scenes in movies, how you pretend to hit and how you never get really close to anybody. Like when Bill Murray punched me in Groundhog's Day, he really didn't come any closer than 10 inches from my face, but the camera foreshortens distance. And uh, so it, it looks like he actually clocked me. Uh, but but I, started, I started thinking about children. And believe me, at the Autograph National, I had plenty of time to think. Um, and I was thinking of the secret world of kids. And, uh, and I'll share this with you, David, because I don't think you have any children, at least none that you know about. Uh, even though now they would be American citizens. That's Congratulations, correct. by the way. That's correct. Thank you for that. Yes, yes. Um, but one of the standard questions I'm always asked by people that I meet casually is, hey, and how are the kids? And for the record, I want to say that I hate this question because I never really have any idea. I mean, I know the kids eat and they get dressed and they go to school, but I have no idea what's really going on in their lives or in their heads. It is the secret world. It's a world that every kid has that no parent ever really gets to see. And, and Anne and I are very active parents. I mean, we try to meet all of our kids' friends and their parents and ask questions and look under the bed and check the closets and tap their phones. But we still have no idea of the various deals with Satan that they may make when they leave the house. And I don't think we're unique. I think every parent is in the dark about what really happens in their kids' secret world. For example, when I was five... I had an invisible monster that lived alternately in my closet and under my bed in an apparent kind of winter home, summer home kind of arrangement. His name was I, the monster. And no, that's not the Freudian I, but I, E-Y-E as an eyeball because that was much scarier to me. I would come out of hiding whenever I was alone and we would talk. I had a very up and down relationship with I, his visits in the middle of the night were often appreciated, and we would talk about school, and we would talk about the girls I had crushes on. You would think I, the monster, didn't care about the opposite sex, but au contraire. He always argued for patience and honesty. He urged me to be more aggressive with the ladies on square dance day than I felt comfortable in being. I thought five or six years of age was too young to be married, but not I. He thought I could be a trailblazer and be married and have children before I was in the fourth grade. And remember, this is years before MTV. But besides being a confidant and advisor, there was another side to I. He could be very angry. There was a period when his opening my closet door and coming into my room at midnight so terrified me that I snuck a steak knife from the kitchen and kept it under my pillow as a last line of defense. I hid the knife in the morning so mom would never see it when she made my bed. Love, terror, and steak knives were all a part of my secret world. Now, eventually, my parents became very aware of I, the monster. On a car trip to San Antonio, I came out from under the back seat of the car to tell my dad, who was driving, that we had to go back home. Davy Crockett was at the Alamo, and we could get killed by Mexicans. Dad didn't listen. I started crying. I, the monster, started screaming at Dad. Dad was not pleased. 
You see, he had to work very hard to get a few days off for a family vacation. But he quickly realized that being a pediatrician, that what he really wanted vacation from was screaming, crying kids. So by the time we got to Waxahachie, dad wisely turned the car around and we all came home. But my big secret that my parents never knew about was I was also a member of a club across the alley at Billy Hart's house. I would kiss my mom on the cheek and, quote, go out to play, end quote. But in reality, I ran down to Billy's for a meeting of the Dangerous Animals Club. Billy already had a clubhouse in his backyard, so it's only natural he should be the president. He also was older than I was. He was almost seven. So I was content to put myself in his capable hands and be his eager foot soldier. The purpose of the Dangerous Animals Club is pretty straightforward. Both Billy and I were big fans of dangerous creatures, and we made a list of all the dangerous creatures we wanted to catch. And being in Texas, believe me, there are a lot of them. The list included, but in no particular order, rattlesnakes, copperhead, water moxum, black widow, scorpions, tarantulas, centipedes, leeches, even the deadly coral snake, which we were hoping lived in the woods nearby. We went out into the fields and hills and creeks in our area carrying jelly jars and burlap sacks. We used pieces of broken broomstick and umbrellas as tools of capture and weapons if necessary. We would lift rocks, roll over rotten trees in hopes of finding something horrible, catching it alive and bringing it back to the clubhouse, effectively making Billy's backyard the most dangerous place in Texas. Charlie Harp was another neighborhood boy a little younger than I was, and he became aware of the Dangerous Animals Club. He heard our mission statement. He saw the clubhouse. He wanted in. At first, Billy and I refused. I mean, what is the good of having a secret club if everybody's a member? But Charlie came across with an irresistible bit of persuasion. He offered us a genuine rattlesnake skull for the clubhouse. He was in. And now we were three. So I kissed mom goodbye, told her I was going out to play. I ran over to Billy's where we met and swore that if we told anybody about the club, we would be put to death. We agreed. We did have a disagreement as to whether it should be a blood pact. Now, Charlie Harp said it had to be a blood pact if punishment for telling was going to be death. And, and I admit there is a certain logic to that. But I was opposed to any kind of bleeding or cutting that happened on purpose. Billy, being a natural leader, said the blood oath was not necessary because the activities of the club were already dangerous enough. We agreed, and we went out on our first mission to find a scorpion or a centipede. Now, Billy was sure if we went down to the creek, we would find a scorpion. He heard that they liked rotting wood and there were several dead trees just lying on the ground. As I think about it, Billy was a damn good president. His instincts were amazingly right on. We went down to the creek. We had found a fallen tree. We moved a decaying branch with our bare hands, and voila, there was a scorpion. We slapped a small jar over it. The scorpion started slashing at the jar and our hands with its tail, as scorpions are wont to do. We righted the jar and we filled it with rubbing alcohol. The scorpion started swimming furiously. <laughs> we screwed the top on and we headed back to the clubhouse. One day, 30 minutes of time invested, 
something nasty in our possession. Priceless. I ran home. Mom asked me if I had fun playing with Billy. I said emphatically, yes! The next day, we headed down to the creek where Billy had hoped we could catch some leeches. And if we were lucky, (laughs) a water moccasin, one of the four poisonous snakes of Texas. Billy told me that water moccasins weren't as deadly as the coral snake, which was disappointing. But they were more aggressive. That encouraged me. I mean, I didn't want to be wasting my time with something that wasn't potentially lethal. We started wading through the creek water and leeches started trying to attach themselves to our legs. We scooped them up in a jar and we had leeches. Too easy. So now we were on to the snakes. Water moccasins apparently love stagnant water. So we were in the right place. The water had this thick green foam on top of it, and you could see mosquito larvae swimming underneath the murky surface. Billy suggested we start turning over rocks by the creekside. And after a relatively short period of time, I flipped over a big piece of limestone, and there was a baby water moccasin. It opened up its little mouth and showed its little baby fangs. And Billy reminded me that the babies are just as poisonous as the grown-ups. I nodded and reached down to get it. Billy yelled at me to remember to grab it behind its head. Hey, not to worry. I knew that. Everyone in Texas is born knowing you grab a poisonous snake behind the head. But the water moccasin didn't want to be caught. It took off through the tall grass, and I ran after it, shouting to Billy that it was headed down toward the creek. I could see the snake making a rippling trail in front of me, and it seemed to stop for a second, and there was movement near my feet. So I reached down quickly and pulled up the mother water moccasin. She was four feet long and angry, and unfortunately, in all the haste, I had grabbed her not behind the head, but in the fat middle of her body, and she hissed, and she readied for an attack, showing her trademark white mouth and huge fangs. I screamed and started swinging the snake over my head. I used centrifugal force to keep her from bending back to bite me, so I'm now holding her by the tail, swinging her around my head, walking around, wondering what to do. Billy came up to give me advice. He assured me that as long as I could spin the snake fast enough, the G-force would keep her from striking. I told him I was getting tired. I would need to throw the snake. He told me I couldn't. He said a water moccasin was not only very aggressive, but it had a good memory and would follow me home. I started crying. I told Billy I had to let it fly. He told me to wait and let him get a good head start for the clubhouse. Billy started running. I screamed after him. If I throw the snake and run, will she be able to follow me? Billy stopped and shouted back that she would track me by scent. It could take days, but she would find me. He took off like a jackrabbit. I stood in the middle of the swamp grass, swinging the snake over my head and crying. Finally, I recognized I couldn't do this forever. And I decided that the snake was probably dizzy and disoriented. That could buy me some time. So I slung the snake. She twirled helicopter-like several yards through the air and landed in the creek. I took off. I ran as fast as I'd ever run in my life. And to further confuse the snake, I didn't run directly home, but I took a circuitous route in the opposite direction. 
I ran over to Driftwood Street and down the alley behind Mark Henley's house. There was this giant German shepherd there that always terrified us when we rode our bikes over there. So I figured if the snake tried to track me, she would have to deal with the dog first. I got home at full gallop. I blasted through the kitchen door and mom was putting supper on the table. She asked if I had a good time playing with Billy. I said, yeah. She spooned some lima beans onto my plate, and I asked her if we locked the doors at night. Mom looked at me with a touch of surprise and answered, yes, honey, always. Why? I started eating and said, oh, I just wanted to make sure no one would break in. Mom rubbed my back. Oh, don't worry. I always lock the door. I smiled, secure in the knowledge that I was as safe as I possibly could be in an unsafe world. Billy Hart and I had a cooling off period of about three days waiting for some sign that the mother cottonmouth had not tracked me down. She never showed up, so we figured the DAC, the Dangerous Animals Club, could begin its full-scale operations once again. Billy produced a huge Whitman pickle jar from the Wynwood Movie Theater. This was our local Saturday matinee hangout. He had a sly grin on his face and said, You know what we're going to do with this jar? No, I said. Billy said, we're going to catch us a tarantula. I was thrilled. This was about as good a news as I had gotten since I found out the tooth fairy paid more money for bigger teeth. A real tarantula. The clubhouse is going to be a showplace with a tarantula next to the leeches, next to the scorpion who was still sitting in a jar of alcohol, next to a real rattlesnake skull. So I said to Billy, when do we get the tarantula? Billy thought for a moment. We have to get more supplies. My brother has to go to the drugstore and buy denatured alcohol. I go, what is that? Billy again showed his expertise. It's deadly poisonous. They only sell it to adults. My brother will buy some and give it to us, and then we'll go out and find a tarantula hole. Then we'll find its escape hole, put the pickle jar over it. Then we'll pour the denatured alcohol down the main hole, and when the tarantula tries to escape out the back, we got him. Slight digression. Let me just say right now, Billy Hart was a genius. He was right about everything, okay, except maybe the bit about the mother snake following me home, but then, again, maybe he was right, and maybe she did follow me, and the German shepherd dispatched her in transit. Anyway. Billy's brother bought the awful stuff. He gave it to us, and then we wandered into the hills behind our homes. For the uninitiated, the way you find a tarantula hole is you find an arid locale, which is most of Texas. Then you look for a hole in the ground that looks kind of like a gopher hole, but with some telltale webbing around the entrance. And once you find that main hole, you walk in small but ever-widening concentric circles until you find another hole with a slight trace of spider web around the outside. 
This is the escape hole, and it's usually about 20 or 30 feet away. Billy and I found a hole that looked suspicious, about three inches in diameter, had cobweb blowing in the breeze. So we carefully walk around the hole, and sure enough, 20 feet away on the other side of a scrub up was a second hole. I put the Whitman pickle jar over the escape hole. Billy pulled out the denatured alcohol. He handed me a thick piece of cardboard for phase two of the operation. He said, we don't know if this hole is deserted or not, so I'm going to pour this in, and if a spider jumps into the jar, you slide that cardboard under it, and we'll have us a tarantula. We laughed. We would have done a high five if it had existed back then. Billy unscrewed the cap turned his head and held the can as far away from him as possible so as not to be poisoned by the fumes. He poured the entire contents down the main hole, threw the can away. Then he ran behind the giant boulder where I was stationed, watching for any action in the pickle jar. We waited an eternity, which is probably kind of like 90 seconds, when a huge brown tarantula popped into the jar. We screamed with glee. We had a giant, reddish, brown, hairy spider with a leg span of about eight inches in the pickle jar. Billy nudged me to slide the cardboard under the mouth of said jar. I ran up. I reached down to slide the cardboard in place when another large spider popped into the jar. Then another, then Another, and then I ran back to join Billy, and then another plopped into the jar, and then half dozen more. The jar was about half full with angry, squirming spiders, and then it didn't stop. They kept filling up the jar. There had to be 50 tarantulas in there. The entire pickle jar was filled, and more spiders kept jumping into it from up from the escape hole. Billy and I started to panic. I asked him, what are we going to do now? Billy thought about it and said, well, we can't take the jar back to the clubhouse. And we can't leave him in the jar. That would be cruel. <laughs> Billy thought about it some more. And after due consideration, we have to knock the jar over and run. Remembering my recent run-in with the snake, I asked, will they follow us? Billy shook his head. No, spiders are stupid. But we have to make sure we never come back to this part of the woods again. We poison that hole so there'll be tarantulas everywhere. We knocked over the pickle jar, and once again, we ran faster than we had ever run in our lives. I got home. Mom was in the kitchen. Oh, you're back early. I walked over and grabbed a chocolate chip cookie she had pulled from the oven. You and Billy have a good time? I grunted with a mouthful of cookie. It was okay. And then I went to the den to watch TV. The next day, Billy and I met at the clubhouse to discuss future missions. And I got to tell you, we didn't have a lot to show for our trouble. And things got worse when Charlie Harp, who had never really joined us on any of these excursions, came over and said he had to take the rattlesnake skull back home. This was a real setback for the club. What made it worse was when Billy decided we had to properly mount and display the scorpion, which was currently floating near the bottom of the jelly jar we caught him in. <laughs> I took the top off. 
I reached in, pulled the scorpion out, placed it on the table, and suddenly it flashed its tail at us. It was still (laughs) alive. It ran off the table into the clubhouse at large. Billy and I screamed and ran into the yard. Miraculously, this scorpion had lived (laughs) for days in an environment of pure alcohol, much like me in the 1980s. With the scorpion on the loose, we were forced to abandon our clubhouse. Billy pointed out that the clubhouse was made of rotten wood, which scorpions loved. So he wasn't going anywhere, and we didn't dare go back inside. Now that I think about it, there was something poetic about the scorpion taking over the Dangerous Animals Club clubhouse. (laughs) If there was such a thing as a scorpion poet, he may have sung the Beowulf-like heroism of one of their own, who survived so many trials for such a rich reward. We never talked about it, but these were very dark days for the DAC. Billy and I still played together, but it was hard to continue without a clubhouse and a rattlesnake skull, and all of nature turned against us. But there was a brief moment when the DAC thought of staging a comeback. One afternoon, a large beautiful box turtle was sitting on my patio, just sitting there as if it dropped from the heavens. I ran over to get Billy to show him my find. I asked, could we include the turtle as a trophy for the Dangerous Animals Club? Billy pondered and furrowed his brow and said it was doubtful. The turtle could hardly be considered dangerous. I mean, it just sat there. But it could be part of a new wildlife club. I called mom outside to see the turtle, and she was impressed. I asked her if I could keep it. Mom looked very unenthusiastic, but agreed to take me to the pet store. I described the size of the turtle to the man at the pet store, and I should mention now for all of our modern listeners that in those days, which is the late 1950s, pet stores were not staffed by the young, enthusiastic animal lovers we have at pet stores today. The people who ran pet stores back then were just one cut above carnival people who were the scariest people on earth. Our pet store man, who had no bottom teeth, said we would need a tub for the turtle and we would need bags of gravel for the bottom of the tub. So he sold us two large bags of very colorful gravel. He said the turtle might appreciate a couple of the plastic palm trees he sold as turtle tank decorations, but most importantly, we would need snails. Mom asked, snails? Yes, ma'am. They eat the feces and keep the tank clean. You don't want to be cleaning that tank yourself. Mom made a face and looked at me. She bought two snails. So we headed home with the tub, the gravel, the palm trees, and two snails. And the ride was joyous as we were trying out different names for our turtle. And they ranged from the dignified, like Sam or Tom, to the ironic, Speedy or Lightning. We got out of the car brimming with enthusiasm for our new critter. I ran onto the patio, and the turtle was gone, never to be seen again. My... Mom and I unpacked the tub and the gravel and the palm trees. We filled it with water, and that's how we ended up with two pet snails. The Dangerous Animals Club had officially slipped into the realm of memory. Fade out. Fade in some 40 years later. I was married, as I the monster had urged me to do. Annie 
myself, my two boys, Robert, age 12, William, age 7, took off on an adventure one summer to live in a 300-year-old farmhouse in the Little Alps of southern France. It was late afternoon in this wild, wild place of mountains and forests and dirt roads and ruins that dated back to Roman times. I was sitting at our kitchen table drinking a glass of wine when my seven-year-old son, William, came running into the house. He yelled for me, Daddy, Daddy, come quick. I just saw a giant lizard on the hillside. We could catch him and take him back to America if you come quick. I was up in a flash. I found myself laughing in a most peculiar manner as I ran out the door grabbing an umbrella to use as a tool of capture or, if necessary, a weapon. I ran with William into the mountains at dusk, honored that I had been invited momentarily into a secret world, and proud that yet another member of the Dangerous Animals Club had stepped forward to do the job so few are willing to do. That was The Dangerous Animals Club, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, why don't you let people know where people can find you this week? I think the great place for people to find me is at the email, which is stephentobolowsky at gmail.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all the emails you've given me and suggestions of stories you want. I love it. And uh, I'll spell that, uh, S-T-E-P. P-H-E-N-T-O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. And I'm also at Twitter at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. Very cool. You know, Stephen, I don't think, uh, I mean, you talked a little bit about how the uh, Autograph Nationals thing went. Uh, overall, how is the experience in your opinion? I I had a great time. I I, I think there were problems in terms of, I think, a rival autograph group uh, kind of said that autograph national. Tried to sabotage a yeah, rival autograph group. Yeah. yeah, they were closed. So we had, we had uh, very few fans there, but the fans that were there were real fans. I, I had hero fans, and, but no one, alas, no one that knew of the podcast. So hopefully next year at Autograph Nationals, they'll know about the podcast. Well, next year, we'll have to have a separate convention for, for the podcast. <laughs> we will. It will oh, be Tobolowski Nationals. And, and also, I should mention, if people like the podcast, definitely write a review uh, if, if you feel so inclined at iTunes, because that is really delightful. Very cool. And people can also find more stories from you at uh, Stephen Tobolowski's birthday party, the movie that inspired the podcast at stbpmovie.com, right? Absolutely correct. And on Amazon, and uh, you could rent it at Netflix. Very cool. Uh, you can follow me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen SKY. You can also email me at slash filmcast at gmail.com. Also, feel free to check out the Tobolowski testimonies, which features emails from you about how the Tobolowski Files has affected your life. You can go to that at tobolowski.tumblr, T-U-M-B-L-R.com. So that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and have a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>